Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Corinthians chapter 6. In 2008, uh, we were able to buy a home in South Carolina, and uh, we decided at one point to redo our floors in our house, and so we decided to put in uh, these hardwood floors that were this dark cherry hardwoods. We got them from lumber liquidators, you know, got one of those, those sales, and I thought about putting it in myself, but it was a lot of work. We were going to put it in the entire downstairs. So there's a kitchen, a dining room, a living room, and all that. But then I had this guy who was a Christian who, who told us that he would give us a deal on installing those. And so we said, oh, that sounds good. Everyone likes a deal, right? So he came and installed them in our house. And when he was done, we noticed as we walked through the middle of the room that the floor kind of bounced and we realized he didn't glue, they, they didn't glue some of the, the boards down to the cement. And it wasn't a floating floor either, by the way. And, uh, and then we noticed that it kind of contracted, and there was about a, a three-quarter inch gap running down the middle of our hallway there. And uh, so right when you walk in the door, you saw that. And so, so I invited this guy to come back, and I thought, you know, I'll look at it, maybe you can help us, you know, fix it, obviously. And... And he looked at it, and he says, oh, that's a problem. It's in the middle of the you know, room. It's, it's going to mean we're going to have to rip up some boards. And he said, honestly, that's just too much money. Sorry, I, it's not, I'm not going to be able to do that for you. And we were like, oh, well, you did install them. I mean, and I was thinking to myself, if I installed it myself, I think I would have known to do that, to glue all of them down. And in the end, we had to choose to decide what we were going to do. And so we decided that we were just going to leave it alone and let the, the man go on his way and I told Dana, I said, I'll fix it. Don't worry, sweetie. And as most husbands do, six years later, I got around to it. And uh, maybe it was longer than that. I don't know. <laughs> it, was a, it was a while. The, the point is, sometimes you have relationships with Christians, and, and maybe someone doesn't fulfill an end of a bargain that you have with them or some kind of business deal, or, or maybe there's some kind of offense that someone has, uh, that, you, that, helps, that someone has um, committed against you. And what are you going to do about that? Well, in the scripture here, it addresses what we're to do when there's some type of grievance against another believer. In the world, when there's a problem you have with someone, especially with a business deal like that, many people go directly to court. Right? They, they sue them. Um, our country is one of the most litigious countries in the world. I was reading an article that said one there is, uh, there is one lawyer for every uh, 300 people in America. So that's pretty crazy. In fact, I read this article in the New York Times online from 2010 that said the United States spends 2.2% of the gross domestic product on tort litigation. That's one person suing another person or a business or whatever. That in 2010 was $310 billion a year. So that's $1,000 for every person that lives in America. And then it said half of that goes to the lawyers. So that's, where it's, that's what's happening with that. And sometimes people sue over serious issues. Some things need to go to court. And there's some things are just frivolous. Uh, if you lived in the 1990s, you probably remember the lady who spilled coffee on her lap and sued McDonald's. I read this article in... 2021 from the New York Post that reported that this girl named Evie 
Tumbies. She's a horse show jumper. She sued her mom's doctor because he didn't abort her because she was born with spina bifida. So she's a horse. She jumps horses for a living. She was born with spina bifida, so there's a lot of pain. And she, she sued, and she won millions of dollars. Isn't that crazy? So this is the world we live in. And if someone's wronged, what many people do in America and other countries too, is they go to court. And some people, you know, it may be too expensive for them or they might lose. And so they might not go to the civic court. Maybe they go to the court of public opinion and they go online. So someone cuts them off or someone gets their parking place. They get their phone out. They're going to record that person. They're going to shout, you know, names at them, call them a Karen or something. And they're going to post that online and they're going to basically try them in the court of social media, right? And the point is what we have here is we have people in our society who, who try to punish other people, who try to get their own type of, of self-affirmation justice, and they take them to court. But as Christians, how are we to respond? Particularly when another Christian sins against us, wrongs us in some way. So we're going to talk about that. This, this text, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verses 1 through 8, deals with how Christians should settle disputes. And really, the, the point of this text is this, is that Christians should settle personal disputes with other Christians within the church. Christians should settle personal disputes with other Christians within the church. And so he, he gives really three reasons in these eight verses of why Christians should go to the church to, to settle dis, disputes and grievances with each other. And the first reason is found in verse number one. And here's the reason. If you want to write it down, you can. I have it on the screen. The first reason we should settle disputes with other Christians within the church is because God has appointed the church to help believers resolve problems. God has appointed the church to help believers resolve problems. And actually, in order to understand this text of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we need to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because they actually go together. Remember in chapter 5, Paul addressed the church and, and a person in the church that was living in unrepentance. He was a man who was living in immorality. He was sleeping with his stepmother. And the church ignored that sin. They ignored his sin. And that therefore, the church was sinning because the church was not addressing his sin. And they were just treating this guy like a normal person. So Paul was saying in, in chapter 5 that the church needs to deal with that sin. And if that man doesn't repent, if he doesn't confess his sin as wrong and stop that and turn back to the Lord, then they need, need to remove him from church membership. And some people look at that and they think, well, the church has no business judging like that. We talked about this last week. You know, judge not that you, you know, judge not, you know, people say that. And they, they think the church has no business doing that. Isn't the church's job just to meet at 1030 in the morning or whenever you meet and end at noon? Unless Pastor Ben goes longer than longer than that. Isn't that, that's the only time where we have church, right? I mean, what, what, what's the church's job beyond that? The church has no business doing that, does it? Well, Paul disagrees. And he says that this is actually the church's role. Remember we said last week the idea of, of judge not doesn't teach the, that the church should never make a judgment. It's actually a warning for you not to judge with hypocrisy. So what we find in chapter 5 is that God has appointed the church to help believers in their personal relationship with God. 
And then in chapter 6, we find that God has appointed the church to help believers in their personal relationships with one another. And so this is what the role of the church is to be. We as a church are to be there for each other. We're to encourage one another. We're to um, edify one another. We're to, to cheer each other on. Like, you know, if you're a, a grandparent, you see some parents with their little kids around here, you know, you should be going up to them and being like, hey, we're, we're helping you out. We're praying for you, you know. If you need any advice, let me know. We, we, should be, we should be visiting those who are lonely. We should be singing with those who are joyful. The point is, this is what the church does. And part of that means that when someone's playing the role of a hypocrite, that we invite that person to come back to Christ. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. The very last two words of that verse, I think, are the, the constant call that we have to each other. And that is to live in what? Sincerity and truth. Right? We're all unified in that. Like We all want to live in sincerity and truth, and so we're keeping each other accountable to that. And so there's times where the church needs to make judgments in regard to those areas. In fact, look at verse 11, and you can see here the church makes a judgment about the one who's playing the hypocrite. Verse 11 of chapter 5, but now I am writing to you not to associate. So that's the church coming together to make a judgment about a sinning member with anyone who bears the name of brother. So they call themselves a believer, but they don't live like one because he's guilty of sexual immorality or maybe greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. It's not even to eat with such a one. And so notice he actually puts swindler in there. And I think actually he's going to be looking forward here to chapter six. It's kind of a foreshadowing. Now look at verse 12. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders or people in the world, unbelievers? He says, what, what's, what, what role do we have as a church with outsiders? What is our role with outsiders? What is our role with the world? Well, we're not there to judge the world. We're not there to get angry at the world. We're there to give them the gospel, right? Our role right now as a church is to give people the gospel. In fact, I was reading a biography this past week or actually listening to a biography by George Whitfield. He was a famous preacher in the 18th century. He went around in England and America, and really, God used him to transform America. You could go into the history of that. It's pretty remarkable. But this man would get up many times, 4 o'clock in the morning, morning, prepare, and then go out at 6 o'clock in the morning, and he would preach in the fields, and sometimes go to factories and preach in the factories. And he was preaching because he saw these people that were lost and he wanted them to come to Christ. And actually the biography was saying that there were times when he would cry through his entire sermon. Because he loved those people and wanted to see them come to Christ. And I think that is right there the heart of the church with the world. Like we're not shaking our fists at the world and saying, go to hell. Like we don't want that. We're saying, we want you to go to heaven. Like here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And then look at verse 12, because he goes on to say, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And the implied answer is yes. So every time Paul asks a question like this, he's not leaving the question unanswered. The answer is actually implied in the question. So is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes, in other words, God has appointed the church to judge and to help believers resolve problems with one another. We're to keep each other accountable. In verse 13, God judges the outside. So God judges the unbeliever. He's the judge of the earth. So we leave judgment to God. But what about the church? 
purge the evil person from among you. That's the church. And the evil person is the person who's playing the part of a hypocrite. We're to, we're to come together to call that person to follow Christ. And if he doesn't follow Christ, then we are to remove and purge him from the membership. So, so again, chapter 5, Paul instructed the church to, to oversee personal accountability. And in chapter 6, he directed the church to mediate between church members and their problems. And so notice these problems in chapter 6. Look at verse 1. He says, when one of you, so he's speaking to the church, when one of you has a grievance against another. So the another identifies those who are members within the church. So you have a group of people in a local church who are living in fellowship with one another, and there's a grievance, there's a, there's a problem that one person has with another person. In fact, you can see this problem down in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, he writes, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle, and notice the problem, a dispute between the brothers. That's the brothers in Christ, the brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's some type of problem between two Christians. Verse 8, this is another indication of what this deals with. Verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So there's people who are wronging other Christians. Christians wronging Christians, maybe even defrauding them. So what was this talking about in this church? Well, we don't really know. But let me give you some uh, possible scenarios, maybe real-life scenarios, that this could be nothing that's happening in our church, okay? So these aren't any illustrations about anyone in here. But just, just ideas that this, this could be. There could be two Christian partners in a business relationship, and they're having some kind of conflict, and they can't reconcile it. It could be that maybe there's a Christian husband and a Christian wife, and they're in a unhealthy conflict and they can't resolve it and they need to go to the church for some counseling and for some help. Or it could be one group of Christians is having conflict and conflict with the, another group of Christians in the church and they need help resolving it. And we could go on and on, but the point is that there are these Christians that are having some kind of, kind of difficulties within the church with other people. And what are you to do about it? Like, what should we do when we have something like that happen? Or the illustration I gave at the very beginning, what should you do about situations like that? Well, the solution for the, the people of Corinth, for the city of Corinth, was to sue. And, and now we hear that, we think, well, that's something that happens often in our society. But for the Corinthian people, for the Corinthian citizens, this was a constant thing. This was a lot more regular than even in our society. It was normal. In order to, to deal with problems, you took people to court. So you had a problem with someone else, and you went to court. And this was just a regular part of their life. But Paul was saying here, but it's ungodly for Christians to handle problems in that way. And in American society, how do we handle conflicts? Well, frankly, I don't think too many of us automatically think, let's take that person to court. I mean, number one, you might lose. Number two, it does cost money. I mean, like half the money goes to the lawyers anyway. Or maybe all of it, who knows? It depends on if you lose or not. But, but the point is, is, I don't think we really think that way, but that's definitely an application. I think probably one of the best applications for us here is us taking issues like this to other courts, right? It could be the court of your kitchen table, right? You're going to litigate a problem with someone else with all these people that are around your kitchen table. Or it could be, you know, social media, and you go out there and you put someone's information out there. Of course, maybe you don't say the person's name, 
but you put just enough to say, you know, this is what's going on. Maybe even qualify it by saying, pray for me about this person who's wronged me. I won't say his name, but, you know what I mean? And so you're trying this person in the court of public opinion. I knew of a, a, a person once who was in ministry, and he would blog a lot. And he would blog about situations in the church. You know, maybe leave the names out or whatever. But it's like, you could probably guess what's going on. But honestly, I think some of it was he was trying to, you know, try this on his blog. Like he was kind of just self-justifying some of the things that he was choosing to do. And the point is, that's not an appropriate way to resolve problems. What's God's way for us to resolve problems? Well, Matthew 18, we go directly to the person. And if that doesn't resolve the problem, then we include the church. And God has appointed the church to help believers resolve problems. So look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads, And when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The idea is how dare you take your problems to unbelievers and don't deal with those problems within the church. Notice, notice in verse 1, the very end, he says the saints. This is a reference to the church. But I think it's interesting he keeps using this word saints. Remember what saints means? It means holy ones, the ones who are sanctified by Christ. And so I think the idea here is Paul keeps coming back to this idea of holiness and purity and saying, why, why are you taking your sin problems to people who are sinners and don't care about holiness? Why don't you take your problems to those who are the holy ones, those who have been made holy by Christ and those who care about holiness? Why do we take our problems and present them before those who don't care about holiness? Let's bring it to those who want to bring resolution, who want to bring reconciliation, who want us to live holy lives. So God has appointed the church to be able to do that. Now the question that comes up here, what extent does the church have jurisdiction? Like how, how far does this reach? I'm going to ask a couple questions. Maybe uh, answer in your head, just in case you might give the wrong one. Should the church privately resolve criminal matters before, between believers? Should the church privately resolve criminal matters between believers? What's the answer? The answer is absolutely not. Hopefully you got that one with me. Well, let's say someone in the church embezzles some money, or maybe a, a church member physically abuses another member. Do we have jurisdiction as a church to deal with that privately? And the answer is absolutely no. That is a police, a criminal court issue. They have jurisdiction over that. And the criminal offender needs to face justice under the law of the land. And so if something like that happened in our church, within 24 hours, we would go talk to the police. We would make sure they were aware of that because we believe they have jurisdiction over those things. And that's where a lot of churches get into problems. Some churches take this text right here, and you probably read these stories in the news. Maybe you know some personal stories. I know some personal stories about it. Not any, not any churches I've been in, but some other churches that I've known, where a church will use this text to hide some type of criminal activity between church members or even a staff member. And, and so they kind of take this text and say, well, you see, we, should, we shouldn't take our problems before the world. Let's deal with it ourselves. But if it's a criminal matter, then you have to take it to the police. It's their jurisdiction. In fact, just think about this. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. 
The Bible teaches that God has appointed the government as his servant to take care of these matters. Romans 13, 4. For he, that's the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. So there are times when governments do things that are wrong, many times. But in this situation here, he's saying when, when, when someone breaks the law and they do something that's a criminal offense, the government is there and they should be. This is one of their rules. They should step in and they should, they should punish the evildoer. So 1 Corinthians 6 is not talking about criminal issues. We're talking about civil, personal conflicts with other believers. Another question that arises from this text is, does this text prohibit me from ever taking someone to court? Does this mean I should never go into court of law? I should never have any issues that are brought up in, a court, in the court system? Well, as you study 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, you'll notice there is no absolute prohibition to ever going to court. There are actually times where we need to use legal means. And so sometimes people go to this text and they misappropriately say, Christians should never, ever go to court. Well, that's actually not what this text teaches. In fact, for instance, I'll give you one example. Uh, two years ago in 2020, we started having services. Uh, I think it was May 31st of 2020. We're a small little church, so no one really cared about us. But then when Grace Community Church started having services, they did care about them, right? And so Grace Community Church, I think in an appropriate way, used the court system to try to fight for the freedom of the church. And praise God, they won. Now, they might not have won. There was a possibility they could have lost. But God in his kindness and his providence caused them to win. And I praise God that they used their legal resources to preserve religious freedom. And so sometimes in that situation, I think it was appropriate for them to do that. And, but I did hear people that said, well, they shouldn't be going to court. The Bible says you shouldn't go to court. It actually doesn't teach that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's also other times. Maybe you need to protect yourself or your family. Right? Think about a, a woman, a wife, who might be in an abusive relationship. She, she needs to go to the police. She needs to go get help. She might even need to get a restraining order against that, that husband. And she'll, so she'll have to go to court. Or maybe someone needs to go to court to protect the custody of children. I know of a situation where there was a custody battle. And there were people saying, well, as a Christian, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get involved in the custody in the court because Christians shouldn't go to court. Again, that's not what this is teaching here. So there are appropriate times for us to use the justice system in civic matters and other matters. So this text does not prohibit ever going to court. So we should never use it in that way. This is talking about disputes, problems between believers. And the, and the point is, we should never take those kind of matters to court and try to get revenge and hurt the other person. God has a process for us. Matthew 18 tells us to go to that person directly. And if not, then invite the church in, invite the elders in, or maybe someone else that you trust in the church for mediation and reconciliation. That's an appropriate ministry of the church. And so the second reason why believers should settle personal disputes with each other within the church is because the church can be competent to counsel you. The church can be competent to counsel you with the problems that you're dealing with. Verses 2 through 6 here, 
Paul contends that Christians should settle personal disputes within the church. And he does so by asking a series of questions. And if you notice these questions, they give reasons why the church is competent to counsel and mediate problems between believers. So look at verse 2. Verse 2, he starts off by saying, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Here again, the saints, this is talking about the church, those who are believers in Christ, will judge the world, will judge unbelievers, will judge those on the outside. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait, isn't that a contradiction? Didn't he just say in chapter 5 that we don't judge the world, and now he's saying here we do judge the world? What's he talking about? Well, in chapter 5, verse 12, he's saying right now our role is not to judge the world. Right now our role is to give the gospel. So he's not contradicting himself. Because that's our role right now. But in chapter 6, verse 2, he's saying, in the future, God will appoint a different job for the church. And that will be one of judgment. Think about it this way. From the, the, the first coming of Christ, when he lived, died, uh, and was resurrected, and he went and ascended to heaven. So from that first coming until now, and hopefully the second coming is pretty soon, right? But until the, uh, during that time period, the first coming and the second coming, the job of the church is to give the gospel. We're to preach the hope of the gospel. But then after the second coming, Christ will come. He will establish his kingdom. And then he will appoint his church to be judges, to be those who rule. And they will, uh, they will uh, be appointed by Christ to judge the world. In fact, look at, I'll just look at this one first. Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. Think about this verse. If you remember this, we went through this last summer, I think. Daniel 7, 22, we learn that the saints will be appointed ju to judge the world until the ancient of days, that's God himself, came and judgment was given for the saints. Notice that, for the saints. So they're the ones who are to be the judges of the Most High. So for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 speaks about this time when this actually happens. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom, those speaking of the saints, the authority to judge was committed. Now, the truth is, the scripture doesn't speak too much about this. We don't get a lot of description about what this is talking about. But we know this, when Christ comes back at the second coming, he will set up his kingdom. He will rule as the king of kings and lord of lords. And then at the start of the kingdom, Christ Jesus will determine and really confirm who's in and who's out. And the people who are in are the people who believe the gospel, who repented of their sin and live a life of faith in Jesus Christ. The people who are, are out, those who will be cast into hell, are those who didn't believe the gospel. This past week, I was uh, walking along and I, was, I saw this guy who was doing some dance moves. He was, uh, had a camera up and he was you know, doing... I'm not going to mimic it, but anyways, I was walking by with the coffee cup, and, and uh, so I thought I'd ask him what he was doing. I, I knew, but anyways, he was doing some dance moves for Instagram, and so I thought it'd be kind of fun to ask him kind of what that means, and you know, does he make money off of it and stuff. So we had a really good conversation, and he actually asked if I wanted to be in the video. <laughs> I don't think he was asking if he wanted me to dance, but 
he would have quickly realized that would not have been a good suggestion. But um, anyways, the point is, is we had a great conversation and, uh, and I asked him, you know, if he gets paid, like what does he, you know, what does he do for work and does he get paid for it? And even this Instagram stuff, you know, he's an influencer, does he get paid for that? And he says, yeah, he gets paid. And I asked him, I said, why do you get paid? And he, well, obviously, you know, if, you know, we had kind of the conversation of, well, because, you know, this and this and this. And I was like, no, like, what's the reason you get paid? He goes, oh, because I, I deserve it. I do the work for it. And I shared with him Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I said, you know, the Bible agrees with you. The Bible says that what we work for, we get the payment for. The Bible says the wages, the, the paycheck for our sin is death. In other words, you live your whole life and you, you oppose God, you break his laws, you lie, you, you, you take things that aren't yours, you, you have pride in your heart, and you sin against God. At the very end of your life, God will give you what you deserve, and that is death. That is separation from him forever. But the Bible also goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I had this coffee mug. Was, I thought it was a pretty cool coffee mug. So I said, if I were to give this coffee mug to you as a gift, how much would it cost you? And he said, well, I guess if it's a gift, it wouldn't cost me anything. And I said, that's right. It wouldn't cost you anything because it's a gift. And the Bible offers to you, or God offers to you, a gift of eternal life. And you don't have to pay for it. It's been paid for by Christ. Christ earned it with his perfect life. He paid for it with his atoning death. And he won it with his resurrection. And he offers to you the gift of eternal life. And all you have to do is believe in his son, Jesus Christ was a great conversation that the man did not come to faith in Christ, but he definitely said he would consider it. So you can pray for that, that young man. But the point is, is that God offers the gift of eternal life. And to those who receive him, to them, he gave the right to become sons of God, daughters of God, to those who believe in his name. And if you do that in your lifetime, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in him and you follow him, then he gives you eternal life. And that lasts for eternity. And so at this last day, we're, those who are confirmed in the kingdom are those who believed in Christ. Those who are outside of the kingdom are those who rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what's interesting about this text here is he's saying that we as saints, we as ones who are made holy by God, we will actually be placed and appointed as judges. And we will be those ones who confirm who's in and who's out and so Paul was making the case here that if God's going to entrust judgment like that after the second coming, and if you're going to judge the world, are you not competent enough to judge small cases within the church? I mean, he's kind of making this argument of the, of the greater to the lesser. Verse 2, look, notice that in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you. Are you incompetent to try trivial cases, these, these small disputes that take place within a church? And the implied answer is you, you are competent. Like there, there should be people in the church who are competent to, to help you with these things. And then he actually ups the ante here. Not only will believers be judging the world, but also they're going to be judging demonic angels. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, don't you wish that had like four or five other paragraphs that describe that? <laughs> but it doesn't. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means what it says there, and I don't think we can really go beyond that. 
We can probably just use our imaginations. I think that's demonic angels he's talking about there. We can speculate. Maybe, maybe we will uh, be judges over demonic angels that tempted us, maybe that tried to destroy our life. And so that'd be an interesting time for us to judge those, those celestial, dark, evil creatures before Christ sends them to eternal hell. But, but think about it. If God will appoint us to judge those powerful, celestial, dark beings. I mean, he's going to entrust that responsibility to us. Verse 3, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so again, he's building this case. Like you, as a church, you're, you, you can be competent to, to counsel. Verse 4, so if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? In other words, those who are outside of the church, those who are not believers. In verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. And Paul was writing here saying, if you utilize worldly means to solve problems between believers, then you should be ashamed of that. So what should we do? God wants us to use the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the truth of God's word, the unity of the church to resolve relational problems. He wants you to see the church as a gift that can help you reconcile relationships that are broken. Now, why is this something that's not very common? I was thinking about this. Why is this something that's not very common in churches? I mean, it's not like you have... Floods of people coming to say, oh, please, you know, help us with these issues. Why, why is that the case? I think part of that is, frankly, that there are many churches and many leaders who have dealt very poorly with issues. You, you could probably think of some examples, maybe in your own life, where you think about this pastor or this church member or this church. And they, wow, they did, they did a terrible job with dealing with that. I'm never going to go to a, you know, to a church for help. I'm never going to go to a pastor for help. Well, I guess I want to warn you about broad-brushing the church and pastors in that way. The truth is, I think you're right. If you think that way, there are people that are that way. You should be warned that you got to be careful who you go to get counseling from. Let me give you a comparison to think about it, though. In two weeks, we have what we call our Kids Spectacular, and our theme is Police and Fire Academy. And we chose that because we want to communicate to our, our city, uh, that we love our police officers, we love our firefighters, we love our first responders, and, uh, and we appreciate them. We want to communicate to our children that those are people that we should trust, those are people that serve, um, serve our community, and so we're thankful for that. And I think most police officers and firefighters and first responders, I think most of them are sincere men and women who want to help people. They go into that to help people. But, but the question is, are there some bad officers? Are there some bad firefighters out there. There's some people that maybe cut corners or do something that's not right. The answer is, yes, there are some out there. Does that mean that we should impose those faults on all officers, on all firefighters? Is that, is that something we should do? Well, the answer hopefully is no. Now, one of the problems we have in our society is that many people answer that as yes. And so they march against police officers. And they march, and this is foolish to do that, right? We don't, we don't take what one person does and apply that to everyone. And so I guess I would come back to this right here. And, and sometimes people can have a negative view of, how, of, of coming to the church or getting counseling 
from a pastor or something like that because they know of a situation that was really bad. And I would just say, don't, don't, don't discount something God's advising you to do because of a bad experience. And definitely be careful. There's some safeguard to think in a church that should be in place that should actually help with that and help us not be wronged in those ways. I think one, frankly, is having a plurality of elders. That's a safeguard in a church to make sure that there's, a, there's wisdom, that there's, there's, uh, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. I think some of the problems sometimes churches get into is when there's this one guy that's kind of running the whole show. He, he has no accountability. No one's involved in his life. He can kind of be this egotistical dictator that can do whatever he wants to do. And, and so, and, and you know, everyone must worship him and do whatever he says. And so he gets up here and he says, okay, you know, these are the movies you're allowed to watch. These are the movies you're not allowed to watch. This is how you should dress. So you, and, and it basically becomes a cult, right? And so everyone does what he says. And that's not what the Bible teaches, right? We believe you follow God's word and the, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, the basis for our faith and our beliefs, uh, for our practice, is God's word. And my point is, is that, so I think there is a multitude of counselors by having a plurality of elders that, that can about, uh, provide accountability and safety. And I think, frankly, too, when there's, when there's issues that need to be addressed, one person deciding on that isn't going to have the wisdom that a multitude of godly men would have. And so, I would just say that's one of the things that I appreciate about our church is we have a plurality of elders, and we're seeking to increase that. When, when there's an issue that comes up, if I'm just deciding the issue, like, there's going to be some deficiencies in what I'm going to think and what I'm going to maybe suggest. But having a multitude of men that love the Lord, that are walking with the Lord, that definitely helps. I think the other thing is, too, making sure that those who are entrusted with um, counseling situations have received training. And I do, I do think, I do see this as an issue sometimes in churches where, you know, someone sits down, and they, maybe it's uh, marriage counseling, or maybe it's someone has an addiction or whatever it is. And so someone sits down with that person and they're hearing the problems and they go, okay, brother, uh, let me read this verse for you. And you pray about it and go your way. And, you know, hopefully you can get some help. And, and they actually think that's going to help that person. And that's foolish, okay? And that, that's what, a lot of times it's because that person's never been trained how to counsel, how to, how to help a person with issues like that. Or, or you have two parties that come in and there's conflict and, 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 the, and that person who's trying to help resolve it has never been trained how to do that. And that's why I think it's so important that if you're, got, if you're one of these guys that are in the seminary here, make sure you get some training. Make sure you, you um, come under some men who have wisdom. In 2003, I... I got my master's in counseling, and then I went to this place in Lafayette, and every year for three years, I got more training, more advice. There was a man in South Carolina that I would go to, and um, he was a counselor at another church, and he often would tell me, you know, here's, here's something to think about in this situation. I could call him. I could get advice from him. And the point is, it's important for us to, to make sure that we're competent to counsel. Now, notice what I say here when I say because the church can be competent to counsel. Did you think that was interesting wording? Why would I word it that way? The church can be competent to counsel. Well, the reason is because not all churches or sometimes pastors or people are competent. And what makes a difference? What makes you competent and not competent? Well, you can actually see the answer to that if you look down in verse number five. What's the difference? It's called wisdom. Look at chapter six, verse Five, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough? Notice that right there. He's saying, is, is, is there anybody in the church that has wisdom that can't step in and help? 
So this isn't, the, this isn't saying that, listen, just go to anybody in the church and they can help you through it. You know, they got the Holy Spirit. They got God's word. Go at it, brother. Slap you on the back. No, it's saying find someone in the church that has wisdom that can help resolve these issues here. And is there not anyone in the church that has the wisdom of God, that has, has been trained in the wisdom of the word? So can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes, against, goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. And so what do we need as a church to be competent to counsel? We need wisdom. And then the last point here. Why should Christians settle personal disputes with each other within the church? Well, because the church's goal is to reconcile and not to win. The church's goal is and really should be, if it's not, should be to reconcile and not to win. Now, when you go to court, why do you go to court? Not you, but why does a person go to court? To win. If you're in court for some reason and you have a lawyer and he doesn't want to win, get a new lawyer, right? <laughs> People go to court to win. If, you're, if a person's in divorce court, that person might be trying to get as much money from their ex. Or if someone's suing a former friend to hurt them, they're going to try to get as much as they can. And the point is, is that when someone goes to court, they want to win. Even when someone... You know, goes to the court of public opinion online, right? They're trying to win. They want everyone to see them as the just one and the other person as the wrong one. And the goal of many of those unrighteous court battles is to win, to triumph over the person. So look at verse 7. What's our goal? Verse 7, to have lawsuits, to go into the court system, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So some in the church of Corinth were trying to win in their relationships with other people by going to court. He's saying, when you walk in that court, you already lost. I mean, even if you win the court case, you lost in life. You lost in that relationship. Walking to court makes you the loser, not the winner. You are already defeated, he says. However, as a Christian, what should our goal be? Our goal in relationship relationships isn't to win. Our goal is reconciliation. When you're parenting your kids, whether they be little kids or whether they be bigger kids, what's your goal in parenting? <coughs> it's not to win, right? It's not to have them do everything you want them to do. It's actually reconciliation, right? It doesn't mean that you don't have rules. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, have expectations. I don't mean that at all. But it's the, the goal is reconciliation, to have that heart reconciled to God and, and to reconcile with you. And sometimes that means there's going to be punishment. Sometimes there's going to be pain. Sometimes there's going to be patience. Sometimes there's going to be grace. I mean, the point is, that it's going to mean different things, but that's your goal. Yesterday, we were in Costco, and uh, there was a mom, poor thing. She was pushing her cart, and she had a bunch of kids around her, and she wasn't my wife, by the way, <laughs> just in case you're wondering about that. Anyways, and so... You know, when we go to places like that, I like to find the most comfortable chair after I get all the, you know, snacks, of course, all the free samples. But anyways, and just sit with my kids and just enjoy it and wait. And I mean, at some point with a guy, your legs just run out, right? You just can't do it anymore. You, you, know, you can run five miles in the morning, but you can't walk around Costco. But anyways, so I was sitting there and I was watching this lady and she's pushing her car and, uh, and her kids were in front of her and stuff. And, and she's like, get out of my way. I mean, I'm going to tell you, you know, and she's like yelling at these kids and and believe me, we've all done that, right? Okay, if you have kids. 
But I was thinking to myself, as I was looking at her and I was just thinking about my sermon, I was thinking, you know, what, what's her goal in that encounter right there? Like, what's, what's our goal when, when we have expectations for our kids, especially when they're sometimes being annoying? Hopefully our goal is to reconcile that heart to God. And sometimes it means a personal conversation. Sometimes that means discipline. But it means that in the end of the day, we want them to be reconciled to us and to the Lord. And even in a marriage, right? Our goal isn't to win in the marriage. It's not to make sure my husband does what I want him to do because my life will be easier. Or my wife will do what I want her to do so my life will be better. It's like actually my goal is reconciliation, which means sometimes I lose the argument so I can win the relationship. Isn't that right? And my point is, it's kind of giving illustrations. This is kind of how life should work for us. As Christians, we should desire reconciliation, not winning, not beating the other person. And where do we get this idea from? Well, because God is a God of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So, so we oppose God. We sinned against God. Our sins separated us from him. We deserve eternal punishment in hell. And what happened? God stepped in. God ministered to us by sending Christ to die on the cross, to go through our hell for us. Why? So we could be reconciled to God. And if God's goal was to win, what did God have to do? All he had to do was send us to hell. Do you realize that? God would be 100% just to send every person that has ever lived straight to hell. But God's goal wasn't just to win. God's goal was to reconcile us to himself. And if God has that goal and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, what should our goal be as well? And so look at verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, even your own brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if your goal is reconciliation, then maybe, maybe you need to take the path of humility. Maybe you need to be willing to lose the things that, that don't matter for eternity so that you can gain that which matters forever, and that is reconciliation. And I think this challenges our values, right? Because when, when our possessions or our feelings or our finances or even a reputation takes a hit, we can be tempted to gather the troops, to go to war, like we're going to fight for what's rightfully ours. We're going to make sure we win. But then when we come back to this, we evaluate, we say, what, what am I fighting for? What, what, am I, what am I trying to get out of this? Am I just trying to prove that I'm right? Am I trying to prove that I'm the more righteous one? Or am I trying to reconcile with that person? Am I trying to reconcile that person with God? So God expects us to do everything we can to reconcile with other believers. So what should we do? What should we do when we have conflict with other believers? Again, I think Matthew 18 gives us the very first step, and that is go talk to that person. Try to win that brother. Try to reconcile with that brother or sister in Christ. But if that doesn't work, then and ask how can the church help you reconcile? Maybe it's just getting both of you together to pray together and, just, and ask God to 
Give us all humility. Maybe it's in your own heart you need to change your goal. Maybe you need to change your goal from winning to reconciliation. Maybe, maybe you've been trying to win by trying to win and conquer that person through anger or maybe through avoiding or maybe through the silent treatment. But maybe you need to change your mind and say, okay, actually, I want to have as my goal to, to be reconciled with that brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you need to talk to a pastor for counseling and advice. Sometimes when you say this kind of thing, people go, oh, no, that's really bad. People will think I'm a bad person. And counseling, going to someone for counseling doesn't mean you're a bad person. I mean, you might have done some bad things, right? But all of us have, and all of us need help. And it might be embarrassing, it might be humbling, but all of us need humility. The truth is, if you need help, then please get help. I think one of the saddest things that happens in ministry and in churches is the, the, sometimes the first time someone asks for help is the time when they're at the end of themselves. Rather, whether maybe the marriage is basically, they've decided already they're going to split the marriage up and they're not going to be married anymore. Or, or whether it be a person is at a point where they're almost suicidal. And, and definitely we want to help people in those situations, but we would love to help them before that. And so church, how can we help reconcile. I think we can all agree, if you believe God's word, we can all agree that the best path, the biblical directive, is for us to see the church as a gift to help us reconcile. And so let's pray, and let's ask that God will enable Lighthouse to be that type of church. Would you pray with me? As we pray, I think we should pray that God would give us wisdom. Those who are in leadership, even those in here who are maybe not even with the knowledge of leadership, are counseling people. Give us wisdom. Give us humility as we encourage one another and help one another. That we need to pray that God would give us grace to reconcile broken relationships if there are some. That God would give us love to forgive and love to cover a multitude of sins. Maybe you're here today and you're without Christ and you need to be reconciled to God. Would you call out to him to save you? He promises he will save. He will forgive if you believe in his son, Jesus Christ. In church, maybe you were convicted in your heart about something that you need to take care of. Maybe it's within your family, maybe with another person at the church here. Would you ask the Lord first to forgive you if there's a sin that you committed and then ask God to give you strength and grace to go talk to that person? And then I think for all of us, let's pray that God will Help our church to be a place that offers healing, that offers hope, that offers grace, and a church that can truly help people walk with the Lord.